0: This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. This is a best of episode titled The Afghanistan Files. Since Danger Close launched, we've featured in depth discussions with experts, political leaders, and veterans about the war in Afghanistan, America's withdrawal and what happens next. Here are a few of those conversations. Toby Harnden. Toby is an accomplished author, editor, and journalist. Back in 2021, he was on Danger Close to discuss his latest book, First Casualty, The Untold Story of the CIA Mission to Avenge 9-11.
1: I was pretty keen to sort of get to Afghanistan straight away, yeah, yeah, you know, same with us, right, you know, <laughs> and yeah, you know my sort of uh, you know I got a kind of of a whiff of sort of combat and military operations in Northern Ireland, and you know I, I really felt that I could cover that well, um, but also my whole time in the Navy, you know, I tried really hard to you know get to the gulf War and you know, instead I was stuck in Scotland. Um, and I remember, you know, my boss saying, Toby, there'll be plenty of time for medals. And I remember thinking, no, there won't, (laughs) (laughs) and there wasn't, you know, left the Navy with, with no medals and, (laughs) you know, and having joined just after the Falklands and missed the Gulf, you know, and having left the Navy because, you know, it wasn't where the real action was. So I I had a, Mm -hmm. you know, and all this stuff with my grandfather and everything, you know there was you know i really felt like i can't miss some i can't miss another war yeah. you know how many wars right. can there be you know that i'm not involved in and but they was you know the office was correctly saying but listen you built up all these contacts in the bush administration uh you know the wars in america as well you know america was a war zone so i did you know i did feel that it was an important story and i did throw myself into it um but you know my heart was a little bit elsewhere and then You know, fast forward to Iraq, and when the statue came down, Saddam's statue came down, you know, I had my head in my hands, like, I can't believe I've missed this. But, you know, spoiler alert, it wasn't all over, so... Yeah,
0: yeah, I know. We all thought we were going to miss it. Right. If you weren't deployed yeah. on nine eleven, you thought, "Oh man, I've missed it again." Because that was kind of a, after Vietnam. That was kind of what happened. If you if you missed uh, if you weren't at Delta for Desert One, if you weren't at uh, Grenada, if you weren't at Panama, if you weren't in Mogadishu, like if you weren't at those flashpoints, well you missed them. Yeah. Uh, and of uh, the entire military, like it's a very slim uh, portions of the military that are involved in those, in those actions. And, uh, a lot of us thought, uh, most of us probably thought that it was kind of like that again, just cause that's what, that's what our most recent memories, uh, were. So, uh, so yeah, and we have really lucky
1: our LA correspondent. <laughs> who's this young guy covering Hollywood and stuff, but who could be spared. And I guess they felt I couldn't be spared. Um, he was um embedded with a uh, third infantry division going okay. into Iraq.
0: In Iraq, yeah. And I was like, okay. Are you
1: kidding me. <laughs> and that's I was talking to him and you know, I was I was happy for him, but I was like, Oh, you know, I was dying a thousand deaths inside.
0: Yep, that's like guys that were already oh fours, oh fives, oh sixes that uh were gonna miss the tactical level maneuvering of troops and all that sort of thing that were already in that kind of managerial type position when nine eleven happened, like they they missed it. Um, they could still lead, but they're leading from a tactical operations center. They're right. allocating forces and, and that sort of a thing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I felt pretty lucky. It seems like a strange thing to say, but uh, to be an E-5 on 9-11 and to be deployed and to be jumping on uh, a C-17 headed for the Middle East. And uh, we thought we were going into Afghanistan, but what we did was land in Kuwait and take over Team 3's shipboarding operations. And those guys went in, and then I ended up there like a year or later or something but um but yeah we we felt uh, most guys back in the states that were getting ready to deploy thought they'd missed it. Yeah. And of course that did not end up being. And some guys just like just like you looking for how am I going to get to this thing? You know, by 2003, 2004 if guys hadn't been in a platoon cuz we still had commitments other places in the philippines and in colombia and africa all these different places europe even uh germany where we had these long-term commitments and uh some guys thought okay i've had a deployment to colombia one to stuttgart germany i've missed it i'm going to keep missing it i'm just going to get out and contract and so that's why a lot of those guys went over and did the Blackwater type thing just because they thought that would get them in the fight and of course you know those those fears of missing it were uh unfounded we didn't know it obviously at the time, but, uh, you know, 20, yeah, 20 years to get, yeah. to, to get into that, into that mix. So if you just, you know, what kind of did your thing and, and tried to, to be the best operator you could possibly be and be always volunteering and saying yes, and you were going to get in it eventually.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, and it was it the same with journalists. I mean, there was a sort of a generation of journalists who pretty much all went unless they really resisted it. Mm. Um, and you know, that was great. Of course, now we've sort of got another generation of people who who sort of haven't, but uh, yeah, there were a lot of kind of unlikely uh, war correspondents, some of whom were, you know, were excellent when, the, yeah. when they got out there.
0: So interesting. And so, so what do you? When do you uh, leave Washington, and how is that? Uh, how many years are you there before you actually uh, leave and take that next assignment? So,
1: uh, I guess I was there for uh, for uh, four years. Yes, yeah, so I was there. I was there for four years. So, um, I finally get posted to the Middle East in uh, September 03 to Jerusalem. Okay. And, you know, I'm sort of thinking uh, that Iraq war's over. It's just mopping up, you know, Afghanistan's <laughs> over. I know Afghanistan's over. Uh, but you know, Hey, I'm going to cover the Israeli Palestinian conflict in the Middle East and yeah. the rest of the region. So great. So, so, um, I'm in Jerusalem and, uh, I went in, you know, my pat Iraq was on my patch. Um, so I went into Iraq, uh,
0: what's a patch is that like, like territory so yeah territory yeah area
1: yeah 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 yeah. is that a britishism maybe it is it might be yeah uh, <laughs> that's my patch um i like it yeah i put it in a book i like that right. yeah the patch you know it's, it's good um so yeah september 2003 uh i get i arrive and within a month maybe it was november i went into iraq and uh and i uh, was with uh I was embedded for a while with 101st Airborne and Petraeus was, you know, in command. Mm. And I remember, you know, there was talk of, you know, there was an insurgency then and- Is that up in Missoula? Are you in Missoula up there? Yes, yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah. And we drove from Baghdad, which is, shortly afterwards was a journey, you you know, he didn't make. Right, yeah, Uh, a year later, probably not. Yeah, and, um, uh, but, you know, I remember going around with uh, some of the 101st Airborne guys, thinking like, wow, well, okay, so I wouldn't walk through that gate. This is like the Northern Ireland stuff. I wouldn't walk through that gate if I were you. That's the most mm. obvious route. um so I, you know, it felt like something was was brewing, but um I was a bit, I was actually resistant to spending a lot of time in Iraq at that point. So I have to, you know, I have to cover the Israelis and the Palestinians. And yeah, you know, there was a, you know, there's a lot of kind of good stuff there. And it was also like a combat zone. Yeah, um, but then April two thousand and four, I remember you um, <laughs> walking into a bar, and there was a guy called uh, Patrick. Uh, so it's the American Colony uh, Hotel, which is sort of on the Green Line, it's sort of famous, yeah. kind of for spies and journalists, and you know, kind of the two sides meeting kind of thing. And so I walked into the American, Col- American Colony bar, and there was a guy pa- French journalist for Le Figaro, I think, um, at the bar. And he just turns around and he says, oh, Toby, yeah. what the fuck are we doing here? We should be in Iraq. The story is in Iraq. with fucking <laughs> Jerusalem. And I remember thinking like, geez, he's right. He's right. You know, because there was, um, you know, an insurgency in Ambar, uh, Sunni, and there was sheer insurgency in Sadr City. And I just thought, like, okay, I think he's right. And then the next morning I phoned the office and basically signed off and said, We'll have a string of cover, cover in Jerusalem. I'll go to Iraq. And that's what I'm going to cover for the foreseeable future. And that's what happened for the next 18 months or so. I was just sort of in and, in and out of Iraq. Uh, no kidding. Between Jerusalem
0: and, uh, and Baghdad or something like that? So yeah, like I, that? Kept my,
1: I kept my apartment in Jerusalem. And so when I came out of Iraq, I would um, come out via Amman and, and then, yeah, just hang out in Jerusalem, usually and then go back in. But I was no longer covering the story unless something big went bang and I just happened to be there And I and I would.
0: Peter Bergen. Peter is an acclaimed journalist, terrorism expert, and national security analyst. He famously interviewed Osama bin Laden back in 1997. In season one, he was on Danger Close for a conversation about his book, The Rise and Fall of Osama bin Laden, which examines the life, philosophy, influence, and personal contradictions of the infamous leader of Al-Qaeda. 10 years later, that's the first time where you actually go into Afghanistan. And at this point, are you yeah. a, uh, a producer for, is it it's CNN or BBC or who are you working for at this point? Yeah, uh,
2: Then I'm working for CNN. So that was a you know, whole different experience. In fact, I went with Peter Arnett, who at the time was the most famous correspondent in the world because it was shortly after the Gulf war, the first Gulf war. And, uh, Peter Arnett, of course, that bravely decided to stay in Baghdad, despite, you know, a lot of people saying you should leave because it was dangerous. Um, And so we went uh, with two other colleagues into Afghanistan. And, you know, for the younger listeners uh, to this, um, you know, when you went to Afghanistan in 93, you were gone. (laughs) There was no.
0: You're not text messaging back. You're not posting Instagram (laughs) photos.
2: Yeah, you're really gone. Uh, So and you had no, and I took $60,000 in cash. Wow. Uh, on my person going in, um, you know, back when, I mean, it's still a lot of money, but then it was like, yeah, because we, we had no idea what we were getting into it. We knew it was going to be many, 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 many weeks. And we knew, you know, there was no, like you had to pay for everything in cash and we knew. So, and, um, so we spent, it was a, the civil war then was, 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 you know, really, really bad. Um, and, and, uh, It was like Mogadishu in the 90s, um, very like block-to-block fighting in Kabul. And it was my first experience of seeing anything remotely like this. And, um, you know, but but the reason we went is the people who had bombed the Trade Center in February of 93 intended to bring it down. And many of them had actually trained in Afghanistan or had some link to the Afghan war. And it was the beginning of, uh, you know, our understanding. We didn't, we were like uh, trying to, you know, feel what was this elephant like? And, and and of course, we had no idea. But we knew there were these Arabs. We knew they were in Afghanistan. We knew that they were planning attacks elsewhere. We knew they'd attacked in the United States. We didn't know what the organization was. We didn't know who the leadership was. Um, and that's kind of what got me interested in bin Laden, because three years after making that film, the State Department released a really quite useful two-page white paper about bin Laden publicly. And I thought to myself, well, yeah, you know, maybe since since the attack on the Trade Center in '93 was pretty organized, and organizations have leaders, maybe he is the leader.
0: And then you go back uh, again. So this is '97 now. We jump ahead here, but uh, but I guess in that in that '93 one was that one of the most uh, uh, dangerous times for you as a journalist on the ground because of the unknown, or did you? Uh, I guess, what was the closest call in all these times you've been to Pakistan and Afghanistan? Um, and I'll ask you specifically about getting to bin Laden, which you talk about in, in this book, and you talk about in your in Manhunt, and um, get, just getting to him, it seemed like it was a yeah. lot, there a lot of unknowns there, um, especially okay, knowing I mean, what we know post 9-11 about some things that have happened to journalists. But what was the, the, the most, uh, I guess, the sketchiest or the most, the time when you were the most worried about security?
2: The sketchiest was definitely 93, because the war, it it was a very, very, very intense civil war. It wasn't like the war, there have been a civil war in Afghanistan for 43 years now, even before the Soviets invaded. But this was, um, you know, there were no front lines, you didn't know where they were, everybody was heavily armed. The prime minister at the time was shelling his own capital on a daily basis, which is kind of a first. between McMaster, he's still around. Um, So you really had no idea. And also, I was completely inexperienced. I was with people who had a lot of combat experience as journalists. Uh, So they knew what they were doing. I didn't know what I was doing. And, you know, I mean, since after 9-11, I embedded, like, multiple times. And, you know, sometimes that's really very boring uh, because you're in, there's just nothing happening. And sometimes that's, you know, it's less boring. But I, I think 93 was the time where where it was the most dangerous because it was also like there was no it wasn't really clear what was going on. Not that it's ever very clear in a in a battle situation, but it was it was very unclear. Um, and I, I don't claim it was like spectacularly dangerous, but it you know, because the other thing of course is like it's only really dangerous when you get yourself into a situation where it becomes very dangerous. And and you know that is kind of the luck of the draw, as you know. No.
0: (laughs) Yep. Uh, and then in, in 97 though, you go back and how do you, you're still, I mean, you're not brand new at CNN, but you're still, uh, you're, you're a producer still at this point. You're still traveling with Peter Arnett, uh, who for those listening got the Pulitzer back in in Vietnam days. So he's been, he'd been around for a while. So you had quite the, the the mentor at that, at that point. Um, Yeah. And how do you make contact with, um, with Bin Laden and his organization? I think it's someone in, in London or Great Britain that you reach out to that's a spokesperson or a PR person in, right. in, in 96. And then finally in March of 97, you actually get there. But how did that process from when you first met? How did you make contact, first of all? And then how did it lead you into Afghanistan in March of 97?
2: Well, making contact, yeah, he had a, Bin Laden had a kind of above ground PR guy. Who actually turned out to be, according to the U.S. government, a member of Al Qaeda. He's now serving a life sentence in uh, U.S. prison. And uh, so I, I called the CNN London bureau, and they had his number, and I called him um, and uh, went to have tea with him, and you know hung out with him, and then I hung out with a variety of Bin Laden associates and colleagues. Some people who really knew him pretty well, some people who knew him sort of peripherally. They were all based in London because at the time. uh, Karl Marx is buried in Highgate Cemetery. So, I mean, the English, UK, has had a long, and honourable tradition of like housing dissidents, and and some of these people were real dissidents, and some were really members of Al Qaeda. But I didn't Mm -hmm. even know that Al Qaeda existed at the time. Um, What? And one of them took we, one of them, a guy called Abu Musab al-Suri, presented himself as kind of a, a a journalist who covered these conflicts and was you know basically an Islamist and. And many years later I found out he was kind of a made man in Al-Qaeda. He was very close to Bin Laden, but he didn't say any of that at the time. So he and his and a, and a colleague of his took us, and that us was Peter Arnett, myself, and the cameraman Peter Juvenal, who'd also spent he'd gone into into Afghanistan 75 times under the Soviets, so which is like taking talk about risk. I mean, the Soviets had total air superiority until 1986. They inflicted a really totalitarian war on the population. So Peter had and he was a former British Army officer, and he had you know considerable experience so i I went with two people who really knew what they were doing Got it. but actually the Taliban controlled afghanistan in ninety seven wasn't especially dangerous because the Taliban you know mm-hmm. their claim the reason that they were able to kind of take over essentially they they killed they killed the opposition um not necessarily by fighting but kind of a little bit with what they did this time around, which is. They seem like an unstoppable force. And Afghans, it's not that they're cowards, it's that they, you know, they there've been multiple changes of regimes in like the last 40 years, and, and most Afghans want to retain their heads on their shoulders. And so if they see that there is an unstoppable force, whether that's the United States after 9-11 or the Taliban in 96 or the Taliban in 2021, um, they're going to surrender or they're going to, you know, make an accommodation. So that the Taliban controlled Afghanistan when I was there in 97. Was safe, but it was safe at a you know tremendous cost. In fact, I remember talking to some pilots, uh, Afghan pilots, at the hotel we were staying at, a zero-star hotel in (laughs) eastern Afghanistan. And uh, there were a couple of pilots there, and I engaged them in conversation. I said, you know, it is safe because one of the principal—I mean, it had been very anarchic in that civil war period—and they said, yeah, it's safe, but it comes at a price. It's like being in a prison. And I, you know, and I. For a lot of Afghans that was the experience and you know Afghanistan under the Taliban one of the reasons I'm very skeptical about the Taliban and probably anybody listening to this now <laughs> has seen enough of what they've done when they're back in power to be skeptical is I have a you know I spent some time there when they were in power and the population of Kabul went down to 500,000 the capital city you know the population uh, today is no one really knows but it's five million or six million I mean uh you know it, it the Taliban really kind of pulled the country back to the Middle Ages to the best of their ability. They didn't really have a plan to govern. And, you know, they were very incompetent, and they were also pretty brutal. <laughs> so, you know, it's not, they're not the Nazis by any stretch, uh, but they, they certainly, um, you know what they've done, I mean you know what they do. So anyway, but that's all a long way of saying that, you know, the, the war was over by the time we met Bin Laden in 97.
0: Take on the holiday season with the help of Navy Federal Credit Union. When you use the Navy Federal Cash Rewards Card, you can earn up to 1.75% cash back on all purchases. You can redeem your rewards as soon as you earn them, and using the Navy Federal mobile app makes redeeming easier than ever. Enjoy the rewards of cash back without any annual fee, balance transfer, or foreign transaction fees. There are no limitations on rewards, and they never expire while your account is open. Learn how you can get cheer to last all year with the cash rewards card at NavyFederal.org. Our members are the mission. Insured by NCUA, rates are variable and range between 12.65% and 18% APR based on credit worthiness. ATM fees for cash advances are up to $1 at non-Navy Federal. ATMs, message and data rates may apply. Visit NavyFederal.org. For more information, Craig Whitlock. Craig is a three time Pulitzer Prize finalist who has specialized in reporting on national security issues for the Washington Post since 1998. In October of 2021, he was on Danger Close to talk about his explosive book, The Afghanistan Papers. And as you can tell, I have been through this many a time since reading it. Everyone needs to read The Afghanistan Papers over this 20 year period, Um, we don't understand the nature of the conflict in which we're engaged, particularly at those senior level leaders, which is their main job before committing America's sons and daughters to a conflict. And they just continue to fail over and over again. And even here, when we're talking about 2009, when we're talking about McChrystal's strategy review, it just proves that they still don't understand the nature of the conflict. Um, And here's McChrystal at the uh, testifying to the Senate. He's saying the next 18 months will be decisive and ultimately enable success. In fact, we are going to win. We in the Afghan government are going to win. Um, and it, w- what's also fascinating to me about all this is that you can take this congressional testimony from 2002, 2005, 2009. You can take the names out and mix them around. It's essentially the same things that we're being told for almost 20 years. Uh, and seeing that word progress over and over again uh, I. Okay, I mean, it's just it's insane to me that you can just plug and play for 20 years and keep doing the same things. And in a couple cases, the war goes on so long that people are thinking up new ideas that were tried 15 years earlier. Particularly when we're talking about uh, the war on opium and drugs and corruption and that sort of thing. Um, Was that a shock to you, or was that because when I read that, I'm like, oh, well, that. That makes sense because you have people that uh, uh, you know were still in maybe junior high on 9/11, and now 15 years later, they're in these positions and they're coming up with these new ideas uh, to, to to combat the the opium epidemic or uh, corruption in Afghanistan that were tried 14, 15 years earlier.
3: Yeah, I, I guess because I have been around so long, I was less surprised by that. Yeah, you kind of see it unfold, and you scratch your head, and it it doesn't make any sense, but um it, you're right we were there for so long and we kept cycling people in and out new people that we would retry things that had already failed just cuz you know we, let alone the the history of lessons learned from vietnam or the soviet invasion of afghanistan we didn't even learn the lessons that from our own war in afghanistan exactly. we, you know and you mentioned the war on opium but even in recent years we you know we kind of went back to strategies and fighting the taliban that that bush used and you know we had a hard time identifying the enemy and is the taliban the enemy or are they not the enemy and we just it was all very vague and the the objectives were uh, became really fuzzy and it was such a departure from the beginning of the war because as you recall back in 2001 you know the vast majority of americans unlike in iraq they supported going to war in afghanistan to prevent a repeat of 9/11 and everybody understood the whole purpose of the war was to go after Al-Qaeda, to destroy that organization and make sure they couldn't attack the United States again. So the mission back then was pretty clear, but within six months, it kind of went off the rails. Al-Qaeda leaders were captured, killed, or had fled Afghanistan. Uh, But then our mission became fuzzy, and we never really were able to articulate what exactly we were trying to accomplish or what what steps needed to be achieved before we could leave. It was always left very vague that we needed to make sure Afghanistan couldn't become a refuge for terrorists again, or this or that, but it was all vague. Nobody could spell out, you need to do X, Y, and Z before the war can come to an end. And you know that really doomed us to stay there for as long as we did.
0: And it's also surprising to me that how quickly we shifted. We let this mission creep, this mission drift. Uh, enter the scene uh, was December 2001. That would be when I look at it. What Carl uh, von koshwitz in On War would say is our culminating point of victory. Meaning, if we continue to push past these initial successes, we're going to turn this success into defeat. We're going to snatch that defeat from the jaws of victory, and uh, that's essentially what we did in December 2001. I think we had 2,500 troops on the ground. We had about 100 special operators and uh, CIA operatives in the mountains of Torabora. We had some Afghan. Partners, who are our partners because we're, we're paying them essentially, uh, and the requests for more troops, which are not far away at the time, um, to come into Tora Bora, block off escape routes into Pakistan for bin Laden. Those requests are denied at the most senior levels because we don't want to look like we are invading this country with 100,000 troops. Of course, we got there over time, but in the beginning when it would have been important to have flooded the country, uh, we, those who request her are denied. Um, we push past that culminating point of victory. Of course, Osama bin Laden escapes, uh, really guaranteeing that we're going to stay there until we eventually capture him, uh, or kill him. And, uh, but that point right there also at the same time that, President Bush is requesting that Tommy Franks come to Crawford, Texas and ask him about Iraq. Can we fight two-war, two-front war? Um, Putting that question to to Tommy Franks. Uh, So it's so interesting that we shift focus so quickly uh, and we take the wrong lessons from the pages of history uh, when we could have uh, captured bin Laden and maybe put an end to this or certainly have a different 20 years going forward. So that shift to Iraq and not focusing the proper resources on Afghanistan out of the gate, to me, it essentially doomed us to what uh, what we eventually had to go through as a nation for the last 20 years.
3: Yeah, Jack, I think you're right. It's hard to overstate uh, the problems that caused by the shift in resources and attention to Iraq. Um, the best way to sum it up, there was this memo, that a confidential memo that Donald Rumsfeld wrote uh, I, it was about a year into the war, so October 2002. And he describes going to the White House to meet with President Bush. Uh, and he goes in the Oval Office and tells Bush that, uh, Mr. President, there's two generals in town who I think you should meet with. One is General Tommy Franks, who, as you mentioned, was the CENTCOM commander in charge of planning the war for Iraq, which was about six months down the road yet. The other general was a guy named Dan McNeil. And Bush says, oh, yeah, Tommy Franks, I want to meet with him. we got to talk about Iraq. But who's General McNeil? And Rumsfeld says, well, sir, he's he's the war commander in Afghanistan. And Bush says, oh, well, I don't need to meet with him. So here you have the commander in chief doesn't even remember the name of the general in charge of Afghanistan. And when his defense secretary says, sir, I think you ought to meet with him. Bush says, oh, I don't have time for that. It's not important. So that speaks volumes. All he's thinking about is Iraq. And you think, well, but still, why can't they do two at once? But as you see in interview after interview for the book and these documents, you hear diplomats and military commanders saying what an enormous effect this had in Afghanistan, that it wasn't just the resources, it was the high-level time and attention that was focused on Iraq. And when things went bad in Iraq, then there was even less time for Afghanistan. So the war in Afghanistan really began to drift as early as 2002, 2003, 2004, really through the rest of Bush's term, it drifts. And this is when the Taliban comes back. You know, the Taliban had been defeated militarily and toppled from the government by December 2001. But over time, uh, because we took our eye off the ball, they slowly come back. And we're sort of because we're bogged down in Iraq, we were very slow to be able to do anything about it.
0: Oh, yeah. It, and the, the, some of these other things, when we talk about the uh, the war on drugs that shifts our focus uh, over there, and we talk about this uh, USAID, essentially a money pit, um, and people that were on the ground can see it. And now the American public can see it with all the the weapons and vehicles and helicopters and everything that we've, we've left behind. But uh, there, there's a couple amazing... Uh, things that you point to here in the book, this hydroelectric power plant, a hundred miles north of Kandahar, um, and the the corruption that, that goes along with that. Um, but were you surprised by how much fraud, waste and abuse was, uh, uh, and how many people got very wealthy, uh, on the contractor side of the house, both in the United States. And then also overseas on the Afghan partner side of the house, there's the one story with uh, the two brothers, the the one who destroys the bridge, and then right. the other who gets money to build it again, and the other one who destroys it, and the other one builds it. Um, and that's just a, a natural part of, uh, of doing business over there.
3: Yeah, well, that was what's shocking, or the frank admissions that people knew while this was going on, that we were throwing good money after bad. And to hear people say it so directly was you know, really make your your eye lo- eyebrows go up, um, but I think it's important to distinguish. We went about it in a weird way. Under Bush, there was this reluctance to spend money in Afghanistan at, at a time when it needed it the most. At the time when we could have stabilized the country with a little more money and forethought, we went to Iraq, and so we didn't spend very much in Afghanistan the first few years. Then, when Obama comes into office, you know, he had promised to fix the war in Afghanistan, so. He goes to the opposite extreme, and we end up spending way more money in Afghanistan than it could possibly absorb, which only made the corruption far, far worse. Uh, you know, so yes, there is a lot of corruption in Afghanistan, and certainly corruption at, at all levels of the Afghan government. So they deserve a big part of the blame. But as you see in these documents, you know, the Americans are the one who made it happen. There was. One interview with a State Department advisor named Barnett Rubin, who is actually an academic expert on Afghanistan. And he said, you know, corrupt there's one essential ingredient for corruption, and that's money. And we were the ones with all the money. So his point was we were enabling the corruption because we kept sending so much money over there. And we knew we were spending it in, in wasteful ways, but even worse, ways that were that made the corruption worse. There was there was another encounter. During the Bush administration in 2006, when the U.S. ambassador, a guy named Ron Newman, went to meet with Hamid Karzai, the president of Afghanistan. He went to chew him out a bit about all these corrupt ministers and governors in, in, under Karzai. And in particular, he was giving him a hard time about his half-brother, this guy, mm-hmm. Ahmed Wali Karzai, who was the political boss of Kandahar and was known to be corrupt. And it was rumored that he was involved in the drug trade. Um, so our ambassador goes in to tell Karzai, you need to fire your brother from his job. He's too corrupt. And Karzai hit the roof and said, you, you think he's corrupt? One, do you have any evidence of this? And the ambassador couldn't, didn't have any hard evidence. And Karzai said, well, you realize where he gets all his money. It's from U.S. military contracts and from the CIA. So it's you Americans who are paying him off. And now you're telling me he's corrupt and I need to get rid of him. And, you know, what can you say to that? He was absolutely right that we we complain that the Afghans are corrupt, but we were the ones who made them corrupt because of all the money we were shoveling over there.
0: No, it's incredible. This the circle, the, I mean, the, the self licking ice cream cone aspect of this whole thing where we're funneling, you know, we're, we're fueling this corruption in a society that really doesn't see it as corruption. They just see it as the normal course of doing business was my, uh, it was what I saw anyway. Um, and once again, us kind of mirror imaging ourselves and our, our values on another culture, their idea of loyalty is a little bit different from ours. Like, why wouldn't you go over to the stronger warlord side? That just makes sense. Let's go over to the winning side uh, or go to the side that's paying you more like those things are just are this natural and normal and then we try to change those when we go in there. Um, It's it's one it's again not understanding the nature of the conflict, uh, the economy, the politics, the culture, the religion, the language, all those things um, that we should have understood before or could have at least come to an understanding of over these 20 years at some point and applied a little little wisdom to, to all of this. If you love America, then Black Rifle Coffee Company has you covered for the holidays. Go to BlackRifleCoffee.com. Check out all the gear, merch, apparel, and coffee roasting equipment. Once again, BlackRifleCoffee.com. I am a member of their exclusive coffee club, and I also get this big bag right here of Silencer Smooth delivered every month. You can go click on your favorite roast and set your schedule for delivery, and then bam, There it is on the front doorstep every single month. It is absolutely awesome. Go to BlackRifleCoffee.com, veteran-founded, veteran-run. Go check them out, BlackRifleCoffee.com. Sean Parnell. Sean is a 10th Mountain Division soldier who spent over a year on the front lines in Afghanistan before being medically retired as a captain for wounds sustained in combat. He captures that experience in his book, Outlaw Platoon. 9-11,
4: 9-11, I think, changed my life. And I think it galvanized an entire generation, our generation, Jack. And I was just a college kid. I was a I was a elementary education major trying to wrap my mind around how I was going to student teach second grade. <laughs> you know, and wow. And the thing is, is it like I didn't come from like a long line of, of military generals. Like, you know, I, I I knew of the military, but it wasn't something that I was like laser focused on doing was I'm a city boy, you know, born in the city of Pittsburgh. Um, Then 9-11 happened. And, you know, I remember waking up one morning with this terrible hangover. I mean, me and my college buddies had this party the night before. And I was always sort of like a listless kid. I never really wanted to know. I never knew what I, I wanted to do with my life, you know. And I knew that like like being an elementary school teacher would be great and probably be fulfilling, but I wasn't exactly like sure in my heart of hearts that that was what I was was meant to do. Um, and then like just that one morning, wake up in this, uh, in this rundown college apartment, surrounded by these beer cans, turn on the television set, um, just in time to see an airplane crash into the world trade center. And in that moment, my life was, was really changed forever. And I just, you know, I, I just believed in my heart of hearts and in that moment in the wake of that horrific terrorist attack, man, that I knew exactly why God had put me on this earth. And that was to, you know, get in the fight and serve my country and uh, be a part of America's collective response, you know. And I wanted to do all the cool, sexy stuff, go into the going to the infantry to be on the front lines and then go to airborne school and go to ranger school. And like, really, the catchphrase of the army, like it was a little bit before 9-11, but the whole be all that you can be, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. What I wanted to do, you know, and, and I didn't know how I was going to get it done because I, I was, I've never been the sort of biggest, fastest, strongest, or smartest guy. I just, I just knew that, that that was my path and i hell or high water. I was going to walk it and accomplish that mission and take the fight to the enemy. And and eventually, I, you know, th- at that point, you know, a couple of years later, I had to transfer schools. I was up at a, a school in Western Pennsylvania called Clarion University. Uh, I transferred to Duquesne University because Clarion at the time didn't have an ROTC program. And I'm like, well, if I'm going to get in the fight, I've got to, I've got to actually have a program to support it. Um, I transferred to Duquesne, graduated a couple of years later, and and was in the army training to go to Afghanistan, and and. In two thousand and six I, I got my opportunity to do that, and man it you know it's it's like when I learned the life lesson of be careful what you wish for <laughs> you know yeah. it was like that I wanted to do all that cool, sexy stuff, and i did i I made it through airborne school, went to Ranger school and when the army sent me to a couple of cool, sexy schools, I was assigned to um, a light infantry platoon in the tenth mountain Division, and I got to Fort Drum, New York in two thousand and five and and back then like we knew that we were going to Afghanistan, but intelligence from where we were going was really scarce. In fact, a lot of the guys in my unit, Jack, like they, they we just thought that it was going to be a stability and support operation. That the, the lion's share of this country were focused on the Iraq War, and this, and this was at a time where people talked about the surge. Right, this is a, a critical point where George W. Bush was talking about sending more troops there um and the debate over weapons of mass destruction and whether or not we should even be there uh, but I, I Afghanistan we just felt like well hey we're just going there a lot of my NCOs have already been there a couple times and they're like we didn't we didn't see anything um oh wow so we didn't know what the hell we were getting ourselves into man and, and I feel like when we finally got there we I, we were thrown into the meat grinder and it was like drinking from a fire hose that, that, The enemy that we faced there was just
0: relentless every day. I mean, it was just
4: unbelievable.
0: Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, describe it in in Outlaw Platoon, and it's insane to think you went from, I mean, you had some training. I mean, you went to those schools, boom, boom, boom. Yeah. And then you, you know, you're, you're, uh, and you fought to get infantry, I think. And then you, bam, you're out there and you get there a little bit before your guys. Um, it's just like, you know, officers, we usually, get there a little bit, two weeks ahead of time, yeah. a week ahead of time. Some of the leadership from the platoon gets there to get things set up and then receive the, the rest of the platoon. But, um, so you get there and your first day in Afghanistan is one that, uh, it, it's, I mean, I know you won't forget it, but nobody who reads this book will forget it either. Um, can you describe that a little, I mean, you are thrown into the meat grinder and it didn't start, it wasn't, it wasn't like, ah, we're going to get you up to speed here. Take a couple of weeks. You're in there day
4: one. Yeah, and and you know how that is, and, and and again, like it's like I, I had some training, but you know, as an infantry officer, I mean, you know, most of the jobs that my guys had prior to carrying a machine gun in the mountains of Afghanistan was high school shortstop. You know, so these guys aren't, you know, they're high speed, low drag people, like they're toughest nails, but these guys aren't like Green Berets, Special Forces, Navy SEALs type guys. These are just kids, you know. Um, and, you know, we get to Afghanistan and, and I mean, we, uh, we land our CH-47, our Chinook helicopter, we land under fire, which, which is commonplace, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but it's pretty commonplace uh, for our base. But we get off there and like, like, you know, it hits the fan, everybody runs like 20 different ways. And, and it just seemed like I'd never been in a moment like that. And it was, there's so many things going through your mind, but like that first moment where someone's like, where you realize is like, oh my God, like somebody out there that I don't know is trying to kill me for reasons that I don't even, they don't even know me either. You know what I mean? That's a—I remember thinking like that is a very, it's a really surreal thing. Like these people want me dead, like, and this is real. And we get to the base and, and of course, we run from the helicopter landing zone, helicopter takes off, we all run for our base. And I mean, had my NCOs who had already been in Afghanistan before, like knew exactly how to react in moments like that. And whether guys were running to the aid station or the tactical operations center to help, like everybody seemed like they had a job, but I didn't really know what the hell to do. And I remember desperately looking for a way to help or to be helpful. Um, But, you know, it ended up being some young private saying like, hey, sir, if you're not doing anything like we need We need all hands on deck situation. Like we need all the help we can get at the front gate. And I'm like, of course. And And I run down there and all these rockets that have been fired at us, the enemy didn't really let up on those on, on the firing for a second. We get down to the front gate and I don't know what to expect, but we show up there and like our base was separated from the rest of Afghanistan, Jack, by like these like wrought iron bars that you would see in like an American gated community or something. And, and we get there and like, you know, you've got our interpreter arguing with, uh, you know, American soldiers and Afghan families. It's just chaos. And as I took a closer look through those bars, I realized like it was like 20 Afghan families carrying uh, broken, bloody bodies of their little kids. And these rockets that the enemy had fired at us that overshot, there were 107 millimeter rockets that had overshot our base and overshot the bird, but landed in this like, um, little Kalat compound school playground and and wounded and hurt a bunch of young Afghan kids and man that was like um, you talk about culture shock and you talk about like it's it's setting in real quickly reality setting in real quickly that that combat is real and it spares no one um, and and oftentimes kids are the ones that are caught in the middle of it you know and and boy is that horrible. And so I just tried to help as, as best I could grab the little girl and uh, along with a bunch of other soldiers at the front gate that day and tried to run her to our, to our aid station where a bunch of our medics and our, our company doc was there trying to, trying to help administer first aid and, you know, end up getting this little girl to the aid station a little bit too late. And she died before I could even get her there. And, and on my first day in Afghanistan, I just remember like, you know, like you walk into an aid station like that, Jack, and it's like, Soldiers are, 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 and you've been in situations like this. I say soldiers because I was in the army, but they're, they're like unbelievable. They're remarkable. Like when, when traumatic moments happen, it's like you walk in there, there's like 10 of these little, of these tables that are like stainless steel tables, right? And they're like, everyone is laser focused on trying to save these kids' lives. And so when, when it came, when we all realized that the little one that I was carrying hadn't made it, um, it was just like, I had to scoop her up off the table, make room for the next little kid. And I just walked her out to her father and my first day in Afghanistan as a, like, you know, really a young college kid, the combat leader, like first day in Afghanistan, I'm, I'm walking the dead body of a little girl back to her father, who her father just like looked at me and like, just stoically nodded his head. Like, Hey, thank you for trying. And then he turned around and walked away. And that really stuck with me for for a lot of reasons, uh, that moment obviously because it, it was so traumatic. Um, but that, in a nutshell, is what Afghanistan is like. Um, and you know, I, I personally believe that, like that, that moment was when I really start like felt a shift inside of my heart. Of you know, you're you're really changing from an insulated American citizen to warrior or somebody that can experience moments like that one and, and endure. Um, not necessarily have all the existential answers that come with that. Right. Like how, how do you wrap your mind around that? You don't. Um, but you, you learn to like lock it away, compartmentalize, say whatever you want, but just focus on the mission. And and what I couldn't get off of my mind, Jack was like, how am I supposed to lead these men? Right. How am I supposed to lead these men and experience moments like that and endure, you know? Um, but you just figure it out. Because you have to, but you have to, but that stuff changes you, man, you know,
0: it does. And like thinking back on it, like the kids over the, that's the part when you, when I look back, like the parts that stay with you are like the kids crying and, you know, on target or whatever, you know, this, the, uh, and when you talk about it in your book, too, like giving candy, like we want to do that as Americans, you know, we want yeah. to give candy. We did that, too. And, you know, when I'm there in 2003, we're giving candies and all that stuff. And and then, you you know, you see like you had that very similar experience. You see these, the boys come out, you give them to the girls and then they get girls get beat up for oh, the yes. candy. And then you're like, geez. And for you, at the end of that chapter, I mean, it is so emotional. Like it was a very it's a very emotional read. So when uh, you could take that uniform that's covered in blood and you walk down to a burn pit and you burn. Uniform mm-hmm. first day in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. like that was just so telling and so powerful. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, it's insane. And then, no, but then you get to go. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, and I
4: remember, man, like, yes, it was. And I remember, like, right after I burned that uniform, like, and I don't remember if I talk about this, I think I do talk about this in the book. Boy, it's been a long time since I've I, I paid like flipped through it, but like, um, we were having spaghetti at the DFAC that night, and, and like. To this day, like red spaghetti sauce, like after you know what I mean, like little things yep. like that. That's just, like, oh, yeah. it's just like that's what I think about. Like when I think about that day, and I just remember, like I obviously I couldn't
0: eat, but it's just like the red spaghetti sauce is what sticks in my mind that day. Yep. You know, it's amazing how that stuff happens when it you associate something with a traumatic event and it stays with you the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And, ah, so powerful. Thank you so much to Sig Hour for jumping right on board out of the gate to make this podcast possible. Obviously I am a huge Sig fan having carried the P226 on every deployment downrange in the SEAL teams. Uh, but Sig was a supporter. They were friends well before uh, I was a New York Times best selling author, uh, well before I even had an Instagram account or any social media presence whatsoever. So thank you guys all so much. Uh, Ron, Tom, Jason, everybody at SIG who gets up every day and continues to crush it and lead the way. SIG is always adapting. They're always at the forefront, whether it is firearms for citizens, whether it's firearms for our military, ammo, suppressors, optics, training, fire control units. They are doing it all and they're always pushing pushing that envelope, and trying to do it better each and every day through innovation and adaptation they crush. So thank you so much for that friendship and support. Uh, It will never be forgotten. Scotty Neal and Mark Nuge. Mark Nuge served in the Army as a Special Forces officer. Scotty Neal is a retired Green Beret Master Sergeant. They were some of the first Special Forces soldiers into Afghanistan following the attacks of 9-11. Their story was immortalized in the film, 12 Strong. Scotty and Mark are also two of the co-founders of American Freedom Distillery, the makers of the award-winning horse soldier bourbon. Recently, they are in danger close to discuss their experiences in Afghanistan. What did you guys think? We're about one year out from uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. When you guys watched that, now you're on the outside looking in, but you were first in. And now you're seeing people leave. What was it like to to watch that? A bit about the experiences.
5: Uh, like I said, we I I had, I had stepped away from yeah. this. You know, uh, I left active duty. I did that contract phase. I did some nonprofit phase, helping different nonprofits. Uh, you know, Greenbriar Foundation and others, and and uh, then I I was working uh, down here in SOCOM as an advisor trainer. Mm-hmm you know, training assessments. So I got to see how, you know, our diff, you know, the seals and the MARSOC and special forces does our training, you know, so, but my point to this is I was kind of done. I had stepped away from that. We like to talk about, we burned the boats like Vikings and we went all in on horse soldier bourbon, Mm -hmm. right. That became my full-time thing. And I was doing corporate speaking and talking to different groups But then it gave us a platform to help promote the bourbon and share the story and just remind people about 9-11 and September 12th, how united our country was. But I I kind of stepped away from
2: that. Talk about
5: the week. I got uh I got a little angry a year ago, Mm. you know, when uh my phone started blowing up again. You know, Afghans that I had met on my many trips back had where they're emailing or calling or Mark, can I talk to you? And this is happening. It's it's we're worried the Taliban is going to come back. So there were some warning signals and things like that that they were trying to convey. But then, you know, when it all come apart there late, late July through June, July, my phone is blown up from other special forces or special operations veterans, people, that, some I knew, some I served with, some I didn't even know, but they want to call and talk and intelligence officers cia officers that are now retired or aid workers that i had met and uh i got a little angry at honestly at how things were going and and realized i had to get involved i couldn't stand on the sidelines so i started working with some other veterans and uh organizing you know uh, ourselves ad hoc to help mm. these allies you know that that felt like they were going to be abandoned and i had I had old militia commanders from 20 years ago are calling me from the battlefield going, Mark, we need your help. Will you come here? And I'm like, dude, I'm not even in service anymore, you know, and they're, but they're wanting, wanting help. And so it was, it was horrible personally Mm -hmm. to watch this from the sidelines, as you saw the surge of the Taliban and some of the, the militia groups that I had worked with that fought alongside us years ago are valiantly trying to defend their communities, communities, against these Islamic extremists that are rising back uh, and sweeping across their country.
6: I think what you saw, even in Tampa, it, I call this where old elephants go to die. You can't swing a dead cat with an old general, sergeant major, or somebody. And I, I think the story will come out about whatever fruit task force and whatever other ad hoc things is the valiantry of veterans self-organizing over yeah. phones at midnight. Yeah. And in the alliances we had not only with the Afghans, but political leadership and Department of State, we actually had presidential staffs calling veterans. Yeah. Because the informal network was firing on all cylinders instantly. Yeah. And we're arranging things. We had a, you know, an ID section, a verification section. You had all of these task force. Now remember, we were the experts of task force, and then one day we retired. Yeah. Your skills are no longer required. All of a sudden, you have this national crisis. And guess who was the first only and endearing response, right? Was these passionate veterans who served life and death with, you know, these people still on the battlefield. So honoring that commitment. And uh, it was amazing. And yeah. it brought PTSD back to a lot of friends. Yeah, yeah it, like I said, it, it got
5: I got very angry at, at probably openly uh the angriest point i've ever been yeah you know after 20 years to see this falling apart and people i worked with are now in the upper echelons of their government trying to solve and be a part of the solution to these very complex problems general dostum was the had been the vice president of the country you know um others had been governors and some are commanders and and some of some of these guys had gone through our special forces course at Fort Bragg, and now they're the senior leaders within their military, trying to overcome all these challenges uh, to stop the Taliban. And uh, incredible effort, uh, helping you know. There's so many groups. I'm, I'm reluctant to even name you know. There's Task Force Pineapple and and just all these others. You know, guys I knew from here in Tampa, and and next thing I know, there's a small cell. That I'm a part of. Some guys I know, some I don't.
6: Nicknames
5: and, like Reservoir Dogs, and, and everybody's a code name alias of whatever, and where you got secure communications going, and we're setting up these intel you have operators, operators that and, are handling and organizations connecting case it's officers. And just fascinating, fascinating. Mm-hmm. incredible effort. And I've met so many countless groups, veterans, Marines in Texas. I've met uh, uh, Guys in Colorado, Young active duty the guys, yeah. not just veterans, because they were some of the last special operators to be in Afghanistan, and their phones are blowing yeah. up because their counterparts are calling them, going, "You know, please send air support. I'm being overrun." Yeah. You know, so it's it's incredible, strenuous, stressful time for me personally, and and uh, I will candidly tell you, you know. Uh, it
6: scared the hell out of my family. Yeah.
0: They, they think you were uh, d- my co Because they
6: never witnessed that, that fever of being like in a joint operations command center, yeah. watching the UAVs, yeah. watching the strikes, watching this. But now it is local, just on your phone, text messages, photos 24 7, video. 20, yeah.
5: I have an ops center and I'm throwing maps of cobble up in my Amazing. living room. Incredible, And I'm running 24 hour ops out of my own
6: home with other, other veterans, but, you know, you back to, it's been a year, right? So healing happens, life happens, right? Um, you have to reflect inward, uh, Mark, it was very successful in getting out those he cared about. Um, we've the good thing about it. And the bad thing is now America's forgotten, but now you have a trail of families that, um, are so grateful to be here. Wow and Afghan will will perk up one day as a, a it's just their nature. You know, there is a future uh, president of Afghanistan probably living in Virginia right now or in Texas. You know, they will go back and fight for yeah. what's theirs. But I I was amazed to watch the self-organization of Ukraine yeah. happen, but then I started to see in the Joy Riders of Combat you know, try to buy their own ticket to uh, Poland and walk themselves into combat. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm here and I'm going to get all the glory of of what I saw that I didn't do in Afghanistan at the end. So I'm a little cautious of sometimes the enthusiasm mm-hmm. of uh, self-organizing uh, yeah. and just trying to be a, a Ronin. I think
5: it's it's it in some ways it's given you know from a year ago it's, it's given veterans that renewed purpose uh and focus again uh, and the moral obligation to help allies yeah. you know uh and things like that. But yeah. It it it's uh and and then there's there's others there's a full spectrum of uh, I I get called asked to go to Ukraine now and I'm I'm like I'm did I make bourbon now you know yeah. I'm trying to 50 and fast. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I don't need to be running, gunning in in, in the Donbass or or wherever. I do
6: want a tank. And, <laughs> and, uh, you can get some of those.
0: Yeah, I know a couple guys. Five years
6: from now, I'm, I'm going on a battlefield yeah. tour. You know what I mean? I'm going to negotiate one of those yeah. tanks. That's the part I did in Pakistan in the '90s. Was going into Peshawar shower to all the gunsuit. Oh wow! So you have hundreds of years of warfare, and that was a weapons manufacturing or collection point or dump point. And you would just go find um, Martini Henry Lever Actions or Stroom de or, um, you or know, Colt 1911 13 original. Oh issues. I mean, yeah. Dude,
0: yeah. I love That's pretty cool,
6: those spaces. yeah. And I can't wait until everything's all secure when I can go find myself a tank. <laughs> I'm gonna get a tank. And yeah,
0: you'll, you'll do it, you'll, I have no doubt. I have partnered with Ironclad for a line of Danger Close merchandise. Sweatshirts like the one I have on here. T-shirts like this, like this. Sweatshirts, go to officialjackcar.com. Click on shop in the upper right-hand corner. Go check it out. Mike Waltz. Mike has been on Danger Close twice, most recently this past summer for an in-depth conversation about America's withdrawal from Afghanistan. He's a combat decorated special forces veteran Congressman from Florida's 6th District and author of the book, Warrior Diplomat, is also a colonel in the National Guard.
7: Let's take stock of where we are a year later. We still have Americans uh, behind enemy lines. Uh, Both the Secretary of the State and the Commander-in-Chief said, hey, there are about 100 that we left. That was a lie. They've now since admitted it was 800 that we've since pulled out, and there's Mm -hmm. still people left behind. and they. They can't get out because they can't get their families out and what good you know uh you know what good family man or 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 woman is just going to leave their family members or leave their kids that don't have the appropriate paperwork uh we have our allies that are being hunted down by the tens of thousands the cousin of one of my interpreters that we did get out the taliban just got his cousin who also worked with us and tied him up to the back of a truck and drug him around the village to send a message to anybody who would ever dare work with us again. Girls can't go to school, women can't go to work. And now we have Al Qaeda back in Afghanistan and back in Kabul, just like they were with 2001 with the leader of Al Qaeda, uh, Ayman uh, Zawahiri, mm-hmm. living out on the open, high on the hog in the nicest neighborhood um, in, the, in the narco McMansions, in the nicest neighborhood in, in Kabul. So yeah, extraordinary success, my ass, man. Uh, This was, and and we could go on that, you know, the message that it sent to Putin and Z and the Iranians, um, as we have green berets and seals all over the world, trying to convince locals to work with us, uh, everybody points back to how we just, uh, surrendered to terrorism and abandoned our allies. And so I I don't think we will fully know the effects of all of this. And then final thing, I mean, not to make everybody want to drink as they listen to your podcast, (laughs) but, um, the veterans groups that stood up like task force pineapple Mm -hmm. and dynamo and Afghan evac and so many others um, you know, these were guys and gals uh, that many of them quit their jobs, exhausted their savings uh, on their own dime. were doing what our government should have been doing, man. You know, I mean, and and they're still at it. They're not going to let this go. Um, You know, I, I just talked to somebody who, who is working with, a Green Beret from Vietnam, he's 82 years old. He's still trying to get Montagnard tribes people that they worked with back then out uh, that the Vietnamese government's still perse- persecuting. Like the leave no you know leave no brother behind is so ingrained in us. They're not gonna let it go. Many of them are really suffering emotionally and mentally from all of this. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I just don't know how this ends because this administration just wants it to go away. They just want to turn a page and they're not helping. Oh
0: man, yeah, I remember getting text messages from one uh, buddy in particular who is over there and uh, just saying, hey, can you get in touch with, you know, so-and-so at, the, at at Fox News or so-and-so congressman or whatever it was. And, you know, just doing what I can to kind of forward these messages you know, along, yeah. just feeling pretty pretty helpless about the, the whole thing, obviously. Um, but uh, yeah, the accountability piece, and that also goes back to, hey, we're having a little bit of a recruiting issue. I'm, I have, I've read um, and uh, in the military and certainly uh, parents of kids who are 16, 17, 18 are looking at what happened there. And I don't think it's doing much to uh, have them encourage their kids to go into service when you see what, what, especially what happened last August. I mean, it doesn't mean as a parent, you're like, yes, let's go serve this, this wonderful country of ours. Um, Look at, you know, we we can trust in these senior level military leaders, Uh, you know, regardless of policy, we know those senior level military leaders are going to make the good decisions for men and women on the ground. You can't say that. Um, it is, and when we talk about accountability, uh, I didn't know that about Denmark and, and Great Britain, um, but it's certainly the opposite of what we've seen in this country from the end of World War II, uh, literally well, 1947, when everything was reorganized with the military and, and intelligence apparatus. Uh, and all that accountability just seems to have evaporated. Uh, George Marshall held people accountable. Before World War yep. II, during World War II, uh, we can all rattle off the names of admirals and generals that led us to victory in World War II. Uh, well, they didn't start there. Those people didn't start there in 1941 in those positions for the most part. There were other people in those positions that didn't that didn't measure up, and George Marshall pretty much fired those people. And one of the yeah, main George reasons Marshall- he fired them is because they didn't have common sense. That was one of his, he had seven attributes of a leader and I have written down around here here somewhere, but one of those ones that really stood out to me uh, is that one of the most important battlefield, one of the important attributes of a battlefield leader is having common sense. And that is why people who had no touch points with the military, maybe they never even seen a military film, never read a book on strategy or tactics, uh, don't know anyone in the military could look at that withdrawal from Afghanistan and apply a little common sense to it and say, wait a sec, we had a tactically advantageous position at this place called Bagram. Okay. Some standoff distance around there. Okay. We Mm -hmm. held it. All right. Got it. Uh, And then we moved everyone to a tactically disadvantageous position in that chaos. And we all saw it on the news. Why on earth would we do that? And wait a second, why has no one been held accountable for that decision? I mean, every citizen in this country who has a little bit of common sense can apply it to that situation. And that doesn't instill trust in our senior level leaders. Especially when they're
7: every one of out. us, I mean, and I'm, I'm sure you felt the same way when we saw those masses crowded up against uh, our Marines and our soldiers knew that it was just a matter of time until one of those uh, individuals had a suicide vest on. I mean, it, you know, so we gave them contradictory missions. defend the airfield, which means you got to have standoff uh, and you got to be able to use lethal force, but yet you know, yet deal with this panic. And mass evacuation at the same time, it was completely contradictory missions, and they were set up for failure. Uh, And and we saw the results of it. But I want to hit on what you were hitting on this recruiting crisis. You know, the Army this year uh, is only going to hit about 50% of its numbers, Wow, 50%. So you start projecting that forward, right, and it takes typically about five years to make up for a shortfall. Uh, then you layer on top of that, the National Guard the the, and the Pentagon is contemplating kicking out tens of thousands of soldiers over the vaccine mandate. Uh, that, that, and, and look, I completely get the argument, an order is an order, you got to follow an order. But as a leader, you have to also evaluate your orders and whether they still make sense. Yes, the platoon's got to charge the hill when you, when you tell them to. But as a leader, you say, Does it, is it worth the cost? To still charge that hill versus the gain i'm going to get and now that the vaccine has shown not to stop the spread it's a personal it's it's a personal health decision and gee two days ago you know a couple days ago the uh the cdc agrees that it's a personal health decision yet um they're looking at kicking out tens of thousands in the middle of a recruiting crisis but i think you hit the nail on the head when you when the country sees such a lack of leadership um when on the one hand You have our leaders, including the current Secretary of Defense, saying the military is overrun with white extremists. Uh, And yet his own study shows that about 100 out of two and a half million participated in some form of extremism. That's 0.004 percent. But yet that was his number one priority. When you see all of this wokeism, when you have classes in uh, the United States Military Academy titled how to cope with your whiteness and your white rage uh, rather than here's how you shoot, move and communicate on the battlefield. And we should learn historic lessons. um, Then you have a lot of people not wanting their kids to join. And then when you have an unaddressed suicide crisis, um, right? I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. Parents are saying, I don't know. And it's even, it's not just, you know, kind of everyday Americans out there. It's current military members, not wanting their kids to follow it uh, in their footsteps. And we're seeing about half of current recruits come from military families. Mm-hmm. So you, you layer on all of that, then you have about uh, 75% of young people are either too obese, have drugs or criminal history to where they're not even eligible. Uh, and and this, is, this is a real crisis uh, and, and I'm pushing to hold hearings on it. What is the Pentagon doing about it? And when you go out there and you kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, you, 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 you kind of badmouth the military, you paint this negative picture, uh, then we're seeing a, a drop off in popular perception uh, mm. of the military. It historically has been in the 70s and 80s in terms of people having a favorable View now it's hovering around the fifty uh, around the fifty percent. Interesting. Uh, that's fifty percent of Americans that don't have a positive view on our military, and we've got to turn that around. Uh,
0: have you seen that? Uh, I think I just saw it yesterday. Um, it was that graph that people have been posting on on social media that shows deaths in Iraq and Afghanistan, and it's a uh, a video graphic, and so it shows uh, the deaths in Iraq and Afghanistan kind of like this, and it shows military suicides on this other axis going and so it just shows uh kind of comparing what happened downrange to what's happening with these suicide rates and it's i mean it's a that video uh that video graphic is uh it's really eye-opening i mean it's 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 so tough we all know people that have have taken their their own lives there and uh there are so many more organizations now, I mean, you can only imagine coming back from Vietnam and dealing with something or world war II in Korea, even when there was a zero, um, but, uh, coming back from, from Vietnam and really having limited resources. Now there are resources out there. Um, but still that, that, that continues to cross to climb. And it's not just veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan, obviously, as you know, taking their lives are still Vietnam veterans taking their, their lives in their their later years as, as well. Um, but uh, but there are organizations out there that are that are there to help, um, and there are a lot more resources than there were. But still, that that suicide rate continues to climb. Yeah, well, I do want
7: to I do want to say uh, for for any veteran uh, listening or watching, look, I I don't think uh, their sacrifices, their family sacrifices, their buddies in Afghanistan were were in vain. Not for a second. We had an entire generation of Americans that grew up not worried about planes flying into buildings, not worried about suicide bombers going off on school buses or in malls or, or or wherever, because we kept the problem over there rather than over here in our backyard. To all our brothers and sisters out there, it was not in vain. Uh, but if you are going to a dark place, please you know, reach out to a buddy, call 988, um, and and get some help. Uh, I, and I'll tell you, so what do we do about it? I'll tell you what way I, we should not do about it and that's continue to pour more billions into the va Mm. uh the the budget of the va has gone from about 90 billion in 2000 to almost 250 billion um now in 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 the last year and yet the suicide rate rate has stayed the same uh and there are to your point there are a lot of great organizations i want that funding to go around the bureaucracy Mm. and go into those organizations that are sitting you know eyeball to eyeball and applying all kinds of different um, you know, kind of techniques to deal with this rather than just saying, go see a counselor and throw in some opioids mm-hmm. uh, at it, whether it's service dogs, whether it's hyperbaric chambers, medicinal marijuana, uh, you know, all types of other therapies. Like I wanna see the full spectrum yeah. um, uh, applied to this problem and not just kind of the same old, same old through the VA bureaucracy. They often mean well, but it is a massive, unwieldy, it's government-run healthcare with yeah. all that you get with that. Yeah. Uh, and so
0: we'll 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 keep chopping away at it. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad Original, presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. Full episodes and books are in the show notes. You can follow me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels officialjackcar.com, that is the website. You can sign up for the newsletter there and click on shop for the merch. Until the next time, take care out there, stay safe, be strong, keep fighting.